Today, I interview South Africa's leading scenario planner, Dr. Franz Cronier. Franz has written a book called The Rise or Fall of South Africa, Latest Scenarios. What awaits us in the 2020s and 2030s? Will the country continue down the path of state capture, corrupt leadership, and economic downturn? Or can South Africa rise from Jacob Zuma's last decade? Franz Cronier analyzes where we are, predicts where we are headed, and warns that there's not much time left to prepare for our future. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exponential Organization podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you thought leaders from around the world, giving input into how you and your organization can grow exponentially. This show is sponsored by Deerstorm, a leading exponential growth consultancy. They can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 5,500 consultants worldwide through to the 10-week EXO Sprint. So visit www.ideastorm.ca.za to find out more. Won't you do me a favor? If you like this podcast, won't you tell others about it? That would be fantastic. Now on with the interview. Today, our guest is Dr. Franz Cronier. Franz is an analyst and holds a PhD in scenario planning. He has published three books on South Africa's future and authored scores of policy assessments, briefings, reports, and forecasts on the country. His third book, of which we're gonna to talk to him about today, is the one, the rise and or fall of South Africa, and the awe is very important. The rise or fall of South Africa, released in April of 2020. He directs the Center of Risk Analysis, a Johannesburg-based strategic intelligence think tank that has advised a great number of corporations and government agencies around the world on South Africa's long-term economic, social, and political, and policy. Welcome to the podcast, France. Lance, good morning uh, from my side. They're very good to be here. Thank you, Franz. Where, where am I speaking to you from today? No, I'm, I've, I've gone into exile in, in deep rural South Africa to, to hide out from the uh, virus <laughs> and uh, enjoyed it very much. And it's, you know, you get to know a small community well, it becomes an insight on the whole, I think. And I think uh, think tanks broadly would do very well to get out of the center of uh, things in Gauteng, Cape Town, Santon. Helen Susman always used to say, go and see for yourself. Mm. And I think it opens the analysis to be away from the mainstream a bit. Brian, so first, thank you for your book, um, The Rise and Fall of South Africa. Could you give us a high-level overview? I know it's a bit tricky to do that because the book is so full of very valuable contents, but could you give us a high-level overview of the book? Yeah, the, the, you said it earlier, the fall, or the <laughs> fall, the rise or fall. The rise or fall. fall, sorry, sorry, yes. Or is the terribly important word in all of this. Yes. And it's, I think, a bit about the national mood that uh, I point that out in almost all my briefings. There's an or, and the yes. or is, the book hinges about the or. The, 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 the book is, it builds on, on two others that have been written. It's an attempt to sketch a very detailed picture. A first of the world, uh, where, where is the, the, the global economy and polity at at the moment? What is the future trajectory, trajectory of sort of geostrategic balances around the world and the global economy? And then, and then within that, to answer the question of um, where does South Africa go? 
And um, I've got the advantage of having a team of the most brilliant analysts who produce an amazing depth and richness of socioeconomic data, a polling and analysis for both South Africa and the world. So we sketch a very detailed picture of the country 20 years into democracy. And we essentially reached the conclusion that um, we use the word fragile quite a bit. And we reached the conclusion that from both an economic and a political perspective, South Africa had by the end of last year, the manuscript was submitted in November of last year, so one month before Wuhan. And we reached the conclusion that should a great global shock now play out across the world, that could very well be an inflection point similar to the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s that triggers a political realignment in South Africa on a scale with what the country last experienced in the 80s and 90s. And so we we wrote this and we submitted it and we went off uh, during December. And when we returned, um, Wuhan had happened. And the world in South Africa was fighting its way through the viral crisis. And uh, Clem Sunter, who, who, who sort of pioneered a lot of South Africa scenario work and a man to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude, uh, when I did my first book, I drew the scenarios with a stick in the sand on a beach in Cape Town. And I said to Clem, now, which, which of these do you think it's going to be? And um, he said to me, which is so true, he said, listen, one of these always happens much faster than you realize. So the thesis of the book is that uh, 20, 25 years into democracy, South Africa faces its great crossroads. And an external shock will bring about a dramatic political realignment. And the nature of that realignment will shape South Africa into the 2040s. And the book then goes on to try and identify what that realignment could be. And it ultimately makes a hard call uh, to say, this is it. Uh, This is what will now transpire. And this is what the country will look like into the early 2030s and into the 2040s. And this is what it will be like to live there. The purpose of it all, and then I'll, 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 I'll stop for you, is uh, no surprises. That's what I say to all my colleagues at the Center for Risk Analysis. The clients must have no surprises. Nothing happens in a future South African or global context that takes you by surprise. And if the book um, achieves its objective, it will, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you about your objectives for writing the book. Because I, I remember Clem Sunter, which you mentioned in his high and low road and the impact that it had on South Africa and the transformation. Do you want a positive outlook, or are you just informing people of the different scenarios, or do you want people to move in a particular scenario? Well, obviously, we live in the country. We want to move yeah. towards the upsides. There are two upsides in the book. Uh, both are they're, they're very different. They both deliver a very high standard of living. One in a in a fundamentally free society, and one in a more autocratic society. And um, for for the rank and file, a man in the street, I I think he'd grab either uh, because both of if you if you're sitting. You know, the, this evening on a, in a shack on a sand dune outside Cape Town, the, the economic upsides uh, take you out of that shack and put your children into the lower uh, spectra of the middle class. 
But um, a great challenge, I think, for South African thinkers, democratic activists, civil rights activists, is that since, well, certainly since the end of the Second World War, there's no case study of a country that was poor and became free and then became rich and prosperous and, and, and middle class. All the successes are the models of the tiger economies of, of China, countries that were poor and became autocratic and then became terribly prosperous after that. And one of the questions we ask in the book is, is, is democracy an impediment to progress? The democratic deficit, the fact that, that you know, Ford of, of the cars, he, he said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. Now, that, that sums up the, the, the problem faced by, by, I think, many democratic administrations in the social media world. But we did, uh, we did uh, reach the conclusion, uh, though, that it was quite plausible that um, should uh, the ANC face a defeat in an election this decade, which we think is going to happen, that given our read of public opinion, we, we do quite a lot of public opinion reading, and it's much better than anything you'll see on Twitter. Don't for a moment think <laughs> Twitter is the benchmark of what people think. It's not. And our polls, and they year in and year out, they show the same thing. A comfortable seven to eight out of ten South Africans are terribly sensible people. They want the same thing. They have a great degree of respect for each other across every fissure of society, race and class and age and politics and poverty. They invested in each other's mutual success. And contrary to, to the tenor expressed on mainstream media platforms in South Africa and definitely on Twitter, which is a, a great evil in the world, I think, um, the great majority of South Africans are, are pretty moderate and conservative in their views and want to work together to make the country a better place. And, and so we did reach the conclusion that we think the ANC loses an election, and we think on the back end of that, you could easily see a new political movement arise uh, to the center of, of the country, even the center-right, that would take South Africa back to the type of pragmatic thinking that we saw flashes of in that first decade after 1994, mm. uh, when the country, we can get into this in a moment, made a great deal more progress, we show that in the book, than I think the great majority of South Africans understand, uh, Lance. Sure. Um, can we go back to the benign dictator that you mentioned, or the authoritarian rule? And, you know, so you mentioned, you know, Singapore and the Tigers and, uh, you know, all those different countries, not Singapore, yeah, Singapore, you're doing well. But then for every one of those, there's countries that haven't done well, who've had, you know, a dictator that hasn't been in the best interest of the, of the country, like North Korea or Zimbabwe, etc. And so hopefully, there was always the risk if we go to that benign dictator that it's actually not benign. And it's a, a dictator that causes the country to go to one of the low roads or the, the bad scenarios. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, we, we explored the idea a lot. You know, there, there is this, yeah, it's a benign dictator. It's the, it's the I mean, I, I've spoken to, to, to a number of, of um, uh, Singaporean, uh, South Korean, other, other Tiger-type diplomats and politicians over time. And, and they, they'd rile, by the way, at the idea of the benign dictator. 
uh, we weren't dictators as long as what you were doing was in the long-term best interest of the country, which I thought was a, a distinction of, of some merit, but not great merit. Now, in the end, for the we, we explored the idea, could South Africa go that way? You know, you're seeing the early advances towards it with Kagame in Rwanda. He's, he's done terribly well. He's not a, a liberal Democrat, um, although with a lot of foreign aid behind him, too, admittedly. No, in the end, for the reason, I think, in the man that you cite, the risk, uh, the, the book led us back. Look, we follow the evidence in the book. We, we, we follow the data, the trends, the history, the opinion, polling. Led us back to the conclusion that, no, it's going to happen through the ballot box in South Africa, not through, dictated, not, not through some move away from that. The upsides can only emerge through the ballot box. That we were very clear on. Uh, and had we found a different uh, result, we would have said so. But the downsides, uh, we, we sketched some, some quite frightening uh, uh, scenarios. You know, uh, South Africans must understand that Venezuela, Zimbabwe, these are real places where people lived. And they once had the same discussions that you and I are having now. Yeah. And uh, those people did not anticipate the depths of depravity towards which their governments could descend. And there's nothing about South Africa, we write in the book, it's people, it's history, or it's place in the world, to say that it's so exceptional that those options are not on the table for it. They are indeed. But, and, and this, this, is, this is your point, we reach those depths only where uh, the, the, the democratic and constitutional edifice mm. suffers a significant erosion over the next three to five years. Other than that, uh, the longer-term conclusions were one way or another, the, the two ways we set out in the main. Yeah. South Africa into the 2030s and into the 2040s could definitely be seen as uh, quite plausibly be anticipated to be one of the most exciting emerging markets anywhere in the world. Wow, that's exciting. Thank you for that. So let, let's focus a little bit on the bad side, side of things. Um, and in the foreword by Rian Malan on your book, he writes, if you're a South African, this book will terrify you and cause you to curse yourself for not getting out while you, while you still could. On the other hand, it might save you by providing you insights and help you survive the coming crash. And I, you know, I know that you've been asked this a million times and you don't need to be a rocket science to know that we're going through very, very difficult times at the moment. But how, how does the next three to five years look like to you until the elections in 2024 for South Africa? Look, however you look at it, the next three to five years are going to be rough. Um, the, some of the context to that is we enter COVID off the back of a decade that's seen us record economic growth rates that sit at about 20% of emerging market averages. Mm. Uh, debt Government debt levels have doubled over that period. Uh, living standards are beginning to stagnate and reverse. If we look at the proportion of households in a shack, we're losing ground. Um, in terms of job creation, private sector job creation, um, we are uh, stagnating to losing ground. A, a very hard um, ceiling on future economic performance is ESCAP which we estimated pre-crisis um, that, that Eskom's capacity placed a hard ceiling on economic growth of about one or one and a half percent for, for the next three to five years. 
Now, all of that, that, that coming out of the past decade is at odds with the first 10 to 15 years after 1994. Mm. Uh, that era saw the country and the ANC record far more in terms of progress than I think the party has ever been given credit for. And I think South Africans understand. For example, on coming to power in 94, half of families in the country did not have access to electricity. And 10 years later, that had fallen to just 20%. And there's, there's really, I, I'll, I'll, I can sustain the argument, that there's really nowhere else uh, that can record some of the socio-economic successes and progress that South Africa saw in that first decade. Mm. If you think, uh, you know, you cherry pick one or two indicators, uh, this, this one is stunning. That uh, in that first decade, 10 formal houses were built. The idea of jobless growth that South Africa had by 2004 roughly doubled the number of people in jobs compared to the position at the end of apartheid. Uh, even in, in areas of, of abject failure, such as education, there are indicators of very important progress. Uh, engineering graduates, for example, from universities, the, the figures were, were terribly impressive as the first small crop of, of the young emerging black elites and middle classes got into South Africa's top schools and fed through into, into the university system. So we, we had this first decade where we did well uh, relative to what was to come. And we had a second decade where that progress was, it wasn't, that progress was interrupted. And politically, we read that as very important because the likelihood we argue is that you're going to be in more trouble politically if you interrupt an upward trend than if you'd never commenced an upward trend to begin with. Uh. If, 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 if housing data have never improved, if a new middle class had never been established, if, if, if the education profile of universities had never turned around, the ANC today would be in less trouble uh, than it is. And uh, very much the, the position of the country now is, is still misdiagnosed as, as two decades of democratic era of, fa of, of failure. In fact, it's a crisis of rising expectations. Mm. that we did well to get the expectations curve up, which, which through, through raising living standards. But we interrupted that progress, and it remains interrupted under Mr. Ramaphosa. And for that, we think the ANC pays the ultimate price. And uh, quite a lot of numbers we've got now, uh, some polls out of last year's election, um, lead us to believe that on the balance of the evidence, the ANC is headed for an electoral defeat. And wow. this is going to be the inflection point. The, the South Africans, I think, since, since the sort of middle of the Zuma era, have been looking for the inflection point. At what, at what moment does the country turn around? What is necessary to spark reform? And, and there was hope that it would be the conference at Nazarek where Mr. Zuma lost. Then there was hope that it might be the election and the mandate threshold and Mr. Ramaphosa. We were skeptical. And I think we've been, we, 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 that was very hard to be skeptical then because our clients and, and the broader public were, were uh, 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 very skeptical of our skepticism. Mm -hmm. 
But three years in, you're not seeing much on structural reform. I don't think you're ever going to see that out of this administration. We can talk about the reasons why. And hence the inflection point, the, the when does South Africa turn around, that's going to be a future election now. And I think we're much closer to that date than the bulk of the analyst community understands. Wow, that's amazing. And in your book, you say, it, and you mentioned it because the, the people are by default conservative, you said seven out of 10, and then also the younger demographic of voters aren't like wanting to vote for the ANC anymore. That generally yeah. the two different types of people that are going to call, are splitting away from the ANC to vote for others. Um, so yeah. how, do you, how do you see that working out then? And, and how do you see South Africa being on that? that upward road after 2024? Yeah, we can talk a bit about those younger people. They're very important. South Africa is a country now where only 35% of people are over the age of 35. Hmm. Um, um, ANC support came in last year at 57%. That somewhat overstates the ANC's actual standing because a lot of that 57, it's disproportionately accounted for by older voters. And the reason they support the ANC is quite sensible and straightforward. They appreciate the extent to which the country is a better place under ANC rule, became a better place. Now, younger voters don't have that same frame of reference. We also see that younger voters aren't, potential voters aren't registering to vote and they aren't voting. And that's not because they are too stupid to vote or they don't understand they should vote. It's quite the opposite. It's that they're really good little political analysts. And they look at what's on offer from the ANC and they say, well, we're not convinced by that. And they look at the DA, which has had a bit of a torrid time, and they say, well, that's, that's hardly compelling either. And they look at the EFF and they say, no, no, we, we're not into this brand of radical populism. And so younger people turn to the protest movement. And we see a very sharp escalation in data on the number of protest actions in the country over the past decade. Uh, even as a point was reached, uh, which again happened last year, where less people voted for the ANC in, in numbers than the number of potential voters who did not vote. So the biggest political block in the country has become non-voters. And they're not apathetic. That's a mistake that's made. They're not. You can see it in polls. They're, un, they're in the streets. They're the protest movement. They, they're just deeply frustrated at the political choices they have. Now, to answer your question, Lance, how does it turn? How does it happen? Roughly three steps. Number one, the ANC is going to lose the 2024 election. Or if the world bounces back really strongly from COVID, perhaps it can hang on to 2029, but it's, it's gone. At that point, we're in an era of slightly shambolic coalitions. And the public will become very frustrated. And out of that frustration, the funding will become available to back a new political offering because it's crass, but it's true. Money and politics go together. And if you want a political alternative, a new one, someone has to put a vast amount of money behind it. But South Africa is a country that has a number of wealthy, wealthy philanthropists and uh, some corporate interest groups that could do that. And that new movement then needs to capitalize on public opinion. And public opinion lies centre-right. We're a more conservative society in the proper use of the word than I think you, anyone who reads a newspaper or follows Twitter could understand. 
And uh, if you get the timings right, so there's this ANC defeat, there's coalition, there's the rise of a new movement to the centre-right, there's a lot of money behind it, that captures public opinion, <coughs> secures a, an outright majority around the time of, of the, the, between 2024 and 2029, and leads South Africa with, with great success into the 2030s and into the 2040s. So that's an upside argument. And I've got clients who say to me, you know, that's a lot of clients will say to me, you know, will it be the EFF? Will it be the ANC or the DA who wins? And I said, we, we don't think it's going to be either. And the client then says, you know, you guys are very far ahead of the curve now. You know, you're talking about movements and parties that don't exist yet. You're talking about events that haven't yet transpired. And uh, that, that, that's, that's right. Um, but that also gives us some confidence. Uh, if, if you look at major shifts, let's take a few recent ones. If, if you'd been the American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, late 60s, how many of the top leaders of that movement would have believed that within their lifespans there'd be a, a, a black man in the White House? It, yeah. it, it, if, if you said to that man, Mr. Obama, at his inauguration, that, that the, when he made the speech in the mall in Washington, which if you've been, you'll know it's such an impressive coliseum. If, if you'd said to him, you know, the next guy to stand there will be Donald Trump. <laughs> he, he would have, he would have yes. thought that's most unlikely. Take South Africa's own history. Mm. I, I do this in a lot of, a lot of client briefings. You know, when I see the, the rumors struggling to follow some of our, our, our assessments of the long-term future, I said to them, you know, let's turn the clock back and let's go back to, to a very important date, the 15th of August of 1985, which was the night that Pierre Vierbuerta delivered his Rubicon speech. Mm. And he said in that speech, a direct quote, a story we rely on very often in all our work, a direct quote, I will not lead white South Africa down the path of abdication and suicide. And if you'd had an analyst in, in the aftermath of that, who said to you, you know what, for all you can see, and know, I mean, the Cold War's on the go, the South African economy's shot, the liberation leaders locked up or in exile. Within a decade, we'll reach a point where the last leader of the National Party will be gearing up to become the tourism minister in an ANC cabinet that, despite its Eastern European origins, refuge, will take the economy back to a growth rate of 5% and within a decade of coming to power will govern South Africa with a budget surplus, just more than a decade. You would have found that entirely implausible. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of firms say to me, is, is your view upbeat on South Africa or downbeat or whatever? And I say to them that I don't think that the idea of positive or negative now needs to determine the future of any institution, even a family that has interests in South Africa. What's going to, for the next tough decade, what's going to, to be the watershed between the successful and those who are less successful is the ability to anticipate, hedge yourself appropriately to circumvent risks and take advantage of opportunities. And, um, and uh, if, if you've got a, a damn good management team behind you that can turn on a dime, understands the strategic environment, you'll do very well regardless of macro South Africa. And uh, I'll make one point, then I'll stop for you. 
a firm I've, 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 I've greatly enjoyed speaking to over the years that bears this out more than anything else is Capitec Bank. Mm. Now, look when Capitec was established. At, at, I don't think the Capitec founders, I won't speak for them, anticipated what was going to happen in the, in the decade after that institution was sort of given flight. And look how tremendously well it did in a sector that the major other commercial banks missed completely because they did not have the management skills or capacity. So my, my answer on, on the question of positive or negative for the next decade is that I sincerely believe that's up to you. Mm. And South Africa will present spectacular opportunities for uh, very dynamic and switched on management teams. And the, while the more mundane, staid, and conservative can get slayed. But in the longer term, I think South Africa's macro indicators will start looking upwards again in the 2030s. And we'll follow Africa. We're great Africa bulls. We're very keen on Africa. South Africa will follow the great African upward trajectory that will define uh, much of the first half of the century. And Lance? Wow. So much to take in, France. <laughs> Thank you for all of that and digest and think about it. I'm definitely going to listen to this podcast a few times and read your book again. Um, just to touch on something else that's happening in November, which is the US elections. So, you know, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And I was wondering if you could give some input into how either of those outcomes will affect South Africa, uh, you know, from November onwards. Yeah, one of my colleagues is running a very complicated spreadsheet at the moment, which we're using to call the result and uh, about a week ago, we'll look at it again this week, about a week ago, we thought that in the Electoral College, uh, Mr. Biden had a, a lead of at least 30 over Mr. Trump, um, which is where to look. Don't look at the popular vote, mm. because that, look, at, look at the college via the, through the swing states. Because remember, Mrs. Clinton beat Trump on the popular vote. Yeah but she lost by a landslide in the college. So Biden is, is, is far ahead at the moment of Mr. Trump. Can Trump still win? Absolutely. If you turn uh, the, the sort of uh, the Wisconsin, Michigan's uh, uh, puts, puts him in touch. What, what, what is the best result for South Africans? So we, we chatted about this just before we started recording. And I don't think that's as straightforward as it appears. Because I think you must ask that question in a greater context of the balance of power between East and West, the Eastern and Western world, liberal democracy and autocratic government and thought over the next several decades. Mm. And I think that given the Biden constituency and the extent to which he will have to make concessions to that constituency, the risk is that a Biden victory will contribute to what I think is, a, is, a, is an accelerating trend of the uh, uh, erosion of the standing of liberal democratic thought in the world. Um, the Trump, on the other hand, is, is, is a man whose character, with good reason, must be called into question but uh, whose political instincts, I think, are very interesting. 
and uh, who who may it's a very difficult choice. This, of course, because you've got. Mm. But I, I put it this way: I would have great concern about the standing of liberal democratic institutions in the world uh, should uh, uh, Mr. Biden win, despite the fact that it's obvious the extent to which Mr. Trump has been able to precipitate ideas and movements that are a great threat to those institutions as well. Maybe what we are seeing is the decline of, of 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 sort of Western liberal thought and 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 uh, 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 broadly, and and this bold rise of and the point I made earlier to you, you know, that since the Second World War, where are the countries that were poor, and became fundamentally free and then became rich? And the fact yeah. that you can't find is is the great challenge to to Western liberal thought and something that I think few Western liberal thinkers have risen to. So, so maybe the, the biggest answer then in, in, in the question of who wins in America is rather what it reflects of the standing of, 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 of America in the world, um, which, which is something we, we ponder uh, to, but without, I think, finding an adequate answer in, in the open sections of that book. Well, I've just finished reading COVID-19, The Great Reset by Charles Schwab. Uh, you know, the World Economic Forum. And they basically say, and I've seen in other graphs as well, is that you know, the world is moving more to having China and India and those kind of countries as being the economic powerhouses of, of tomorrow or, or next in the, you know, a few years' time. And actually a shift from the dollar to the Chinese currency as you know, the currency that you base your transactions and your, your value on. And, and I suppose... I think that's going to happen and carry on happening. But I suppose in the short term, we need a, a, a United States that is more outwardly focused and able to give to South Africa than, say, what I think a Donald Trump would, which is more internal focused than hopefully maybe a Joe Biden would towards South Africa. Yeah, I mean, the importance of America and the world is, I mean, obviously very great, but mustn't be overlooked that it was America that saved the world from fascism in the 1940s and Communism in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, without a strong America, um, the the uh, uh, future drift of events um, is uh, should concern anyone who who has an interest in living in a in a fundamentally free world. On on the currency and, and China and and what's yeah, there's there's some really interesting data around that that we're still making head and tail of. Uh, go and draw a, a, a graphic of, of China's gold reserves in tons over the past 20 years. And you see a very interesting trend line uh, moving upwards. I was privileged to be briefed last week by a chap who I hope will become more prominent in the South African debate on um, yeah, the longer-term outlook for the global economy, which, which wasn't particularly strong given the extent to which um, the, this chap's thesis, uh, dollar liquidity since the dot-com issues, has taken off, driving asset prices around the world sky high, mm. even as wage levels and the like did not follow. And the question asked then is, given the current extent of stimulus experiments by central bankers, what happens should confidence in stimulus measures collapse? Do asset prices collapse? And does that set up 
a, a great uh, a global uh, a pullback, a sort of 2008, but, but on a super scale. And uh, more and more our emerging thinking is starting to become that um, even beyond the sort of West versus China stimulus and the extent to which stimulus has distorted uh, markets and economies and uh, does the world need to regurgitate the consequences of all the stimulus since the 1990s, the global economy, before it's back on an even keel? Now, that would be an epoch-setting uh, future event that would dwarf, I think, the, the tit-for-tat disputes that you now see between the sort of wolf-warrior Chinese diplomats and, uh, and, and, and elements of, of the American administration. So if you watch... Watch November, it's important. I think it's very difficult out of that result to say what has been a good result for the world or a bad result. But beyond that, watch this, this problem of confidence and stimulus because if mm. that collapses, then, uh, the, the, then uh, the, you know, all bets are off on, <laughs> on what the next decade is going to be like. Yeah. Um, yeah, it might be a good thing for South Africa because then we can like go up through that whole disaster or um, reset um, and get through into 2024 and almost a clean slate almost <laughs> with everybody else. Now, now, Franz, tell me about the, the center of risk analysis. Um, what, what does that do? What, what do, you, do you do for the, the CRA and, and what kind of services do you provide? The centre is, is a group of analysts. They, they grew out of uh, my main employer, the, the think tank, the, the IRR, the old uh, South African Institute of Race Relations, took a lot of the, the, the analysis data and method out of that and started applying it to firms and governments and government agencies who wanted a very firm read on what was happening, why, and what is going to happen next. And we started in South Africa, and I think we're very good on South Africa. I don't think anyone's got the depth of, of insight uh, that, that we bring to, to the analysis. And then our clients started, started leaving South Africa, and, and they started diversifying themselves, which is the term one uses, uh, to say that they were very worried about South Africa, so they, they're hedging. And we followed them now more and more into the rest of the world, which is why we we, we develop uh, uh, analyses of the outcome of the American election or internal Chinese balances of power or these, 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 this dollar liquidity uh, threat. Um, and the center works for these groups, usually corporates, government departments and agencies here and around the world. And its one objective is definitely no surprises. If you talk to us, consult our documents, reports, and notes, nothing happens in your future strategic environment that you have not been able to anticipate. And uh, uh, it's a very exciting place to be, of course, uh, given the degree of uncertainty that confronts both the world and, and South Africa at, at the moment. And um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite daunting. Uh, some of the trends are are distressing uh, too, but I think amidst all of it, we've we've got a handle on things, and I I think uh, we're we've got enough information to safeguard 
any entity against unanticipated events and to open windows to opportunities that rank and file firms and individuals are likely to miss because they're too blinded by the noise that they see coming out of social media and out of the mainstream media. Mm. Well, Franz, I'll have the details of the Center of Risk Analysis in the show notes, uh, the website. Um, and can I give your LinkedIn details in the show notes as well for people to yeah, connect absolutely. with you? Absolutely. Put it all in there. Put in the web. They're welcome to get hold of us uh, directly. Send us a note on, on social media even or so. Uh, um, send, send us an email or a call or uh, uh, and we'd be one of my chaps or, or I will be in touch very quickly. Um, follow up on that. That would be good of you, Lance. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again for your book, The Rise or Fall of South Africa. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And I'm really, you know, I've got a young family. I'm not going anywhere. And so I, I want to see South Africa you know, thrive after, you know, in the 2020s and 30s. And I'm hoping that your book uh, can have a, a, a way of doing that. So the, the Rise or Fall uh, of South Africa is available on Amazon. It's you, you can go and look for the new releases. It's, it's in there. That's where, you know, I found it. And content. Um, so it's one yeah, of the best even, sellers on Amazon. We've even been able to print books now. That's been allowed. So the, you'll find it at exclusive books in South Africa as well. Ah, super. Thank you. All right. So thank you so much for joining me today, France. It's been really interesting and, and fantastic talking to you. Thanks for being so generous with your time. It's an enormous pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. Uh, my email is lance at ideastorm.co.za or the website is www.ideastorm.co.za. And I'll have all the book details, uh, the Center for Risk Analysis details, and, and Dr. Francis' details in the show notes for you to access. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.